Welcome to the Sprig Podcast, your source for the most relevant topics in pediatric dentistry. I'm your host, Dr. Jared Johnson. Today, we are going to be focusing on a topic that is very important for all dentists in their dental practice, and that is infection control and OSHA compliance. Our guest today is Mrs. Jessica Wilson. She has a master's in public health, and she is an infection prevention and instrument management specialist with Hugh Freedy. She has been lecturing around the country and the world. She's lectured at the Massachusetts Dental Society, Southwest Dental Conference, California Dental Association, American Academy of General Dentistry, and Smile Source Events. She supports encouraging a no-excuse environment that invokes a positive change in people within infection control and OSHA compliance. Welcome, and it is a pleasure to have you on the show today. Hey, thanks, Dr. Jared. Happy to be here with you today. It's been wonderful working with Hugh Freedy. Recently, you guys just released the green light uh, breach preparedness and OSHA and infection control set up for some of your customers. And I was at the Iowa Dental Association with my Hugh Freedy rep uh, ordering some stainless steel crowns. And she said, you order a lot from us. Have you heard about this green light program? And I said, no. What does it entail? She said, well, you already qualify because you're purchasing these things. But she gave me the brochure and I was astounded to see how many breaches have, have happened. It seems like this is something that is not to be ignored in your dental practice. And I think there's some topics we're going to touch on a little bit later that are specific to your pediatric dental office, specifically uh, dental unit waterline and the risk you have at your office with performing pulpotomies and also the new CDC regulation on handpieces is huge in pediatric dental offices because we are focused a lot on volume and we do a lot of those cleanings and those handpieces definitely are something that are, you know, something we need to be prepared to take care of. There's two different aspects that Greenlight uses, Jessica. Is that right? There's OSHA compliance, which is meant to protect the employees, if I understand correctly, and the CDC guidelines are, you know, related to infection control. Can you kind of distinguish the two different aspects that we need to be concerned about as practice owners and keeping our patients and our staff safe from bloodborne pathogens? Yes, absolutely. So OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration um, Act, was enacted really because um, the public basically said we can go to work and get hurt on the job and there's no recourse, there's nothing to say. So you, Dr. Jared, could be running a completely unsafe dental practice, not provide the personal protective equipment, um, that your equipment is not exactly safe, you're not training your employees, and someone get hurt, and then be completely out of work, and that was their problem back in the day. So OSHA is really, you know, part of the U.S. Department of Labor. It is really to protect employees and make sure that they are working in a safe environment. So it's federal. The CDC guidelines is really focused on the larger public health scope. So it is patient safety. And so what the CDC is taking a look at is, okay, when a patient comes into your practice, what are you doing to make sure that that patient doesn't acquire an infection in your healthcare establishment, whether it's from one of your employees, from another patient that was there prior to them, et cetera. So the difference is, is um, you know, it's very clear when we, when we talk about infection control and OSHA that I think people in, in the dental industry are well aware that OSHA training 
and following OSHA compliance is required. So there's that big, you know, important word of required. And then there's all these, you know, there's questions around, well, do I have to do the CDC? Is it required? It's the minimum standard of care for all patient safety as a benchmark is really what the CDC guidelines are for. So I think there's very few dental practice acts in the U.S. that don't reference the CDC guidelines. To be specific, 40 out of the 50 states do reference the CDC guidelines in their dental practice act to say that if you're practicing in our state and you're a licensed clinician, um, you need to know this and you need to be following these protocols to protect yourself and your patients. So I hope that gives a little bit of insight into some of the background and the questions. Yeah, I think the also what you mentioned about every state's going to be a little different with the what the state board mandates. I really liked how the Greenlight program gave direct references to the state which I practice in, and that is Iowa, and really tying that in well to our manual. Hugh Freedy recently conducted a study, and I thought this was kind of a, you know, my job out dropped when I saw these statistics. They did an interesting uh, research that indicates practices are not compliant with the guidelines and state standards. Their survey indicated 66% of people were not compliant in monitoring their sterilization units. 36% of people transported contaminated instruments just on a loose tray, which, you know, if you don't have it in a tub, you could potentially drop the instrument. If it's sharp, it could be a hazard, you know, dropping that and, and cutting someone. 29% of practices hand scrubbed the instruments for sterilization instead of wearing proper protective equipment. 18% perform biological mon monitoring only monthly. And 14% don't or aren't sure if they observe the published guidelines, which we just referenced. But this was where my jaw dropped. 99% of practices believe their infection prevention programs are effective. And some of those numbers, they just don't, they don't add up to make it so you're, you're actually protecting your, your patients. Um, what are some of the most common areas you might see uh, pediatric dentists have as a, a breach in their, potential breach in their office? So I think it's interesting that 99% of people that actually think they're doing the right thing. And what's interesting, Dr. Jared, is to go into the average dental practice. Heck, if I walked into the doors of your practice and I talked to your staff and say, hey, show me how you turn over your treatment room and show me how you reprocess your instruments. Who trained you to do this? The majority of the time they say, well, you know, Susie's been here for 15 years. She trained me to do everything that I know how to do. And I don't know the last time in, some, in many a cases that Susie picked up the CDC guidelines to see if anything's changed since she started doing her job 15 years ago, right? So people have um, good intentions with, with these types of things, but there are some gaps that definitely need to be addressed. And I think some of the common things um, specific in, in pediatric dentistry, as you mentioned, the statistic of transporting contaminated instruments. So I still don't think most people um, own that instruments need to be transported in a closed container. So OSHA, um, is, is pretty clear about that. And that's because you're dealing with sharp instruments. Instruments are some of the sharpest items in a dental practice, second to a needle, right? Or they can go hand in hand in these surgical instruments or scalers, you know, for example. So making sure that instruments are, are transported in the right containers and when being transported, um, 
the staff have on, you know, utility gloves that are protective against chemicals and sharp items where, you know, at Hugh Freedy, we definitely take into the guidelines into considerations when we're developing our products. So our utility gloves are chemical resistant, they're puncture resistant, they're made for a healthcare environment, and you can also sterilize them. And so many people don't know that, you know, so that's an example. Um, I think, you know, with proper instrument reprocessing, instrument reprocessing, it really is a sophisticated process. And I'll tell you, Jared, that in the medical community, there's an organization called ISHM. The ISHM organization is, is a medical instrumentation um, organization. They have a lobbyist right now that is working for states to require that anyone working in central sterilization who has to process instruments has to be certified. So the difference between a private dental practice and a, and a hospital reprocessing institution really isn't different beyond the size and the scope of what they're doing. So I think that's just very telling as to where we are and the importance of proper instrument reprocessing um, in a dental practice and what's needed. And then you mentioned, you know, the sterilization of hand pieces and maintenance of dental unit water lines. I think there's still a high rate of noncompliance in those two areas. And some of those reasons are people not knowing that these things are required and it's not voluntary or not being clear on how these protocols actually look when they're executed in their particular environment. So they see it in writing, they go to a CE course, they hear the lecturer say, yep, this is what you're supposed to be doing. And they go back into their practice and they go, where do I begin? And they get confused. So they need a little bit more of a roadmap, which is what we developed Greenlight to be, to really break down some of the information and help people um, take the complexity out of the compliance metrics that they have to follow. You had touched on transporting instruments. Do you mind sharing what's the proper way? I know at my office we use Hugh Freedy cassettes, and then we also have the Hugh Freedy tubs that are marked with, you know, a biohazard sticker that can be used for instruments that are not loose. Are those, you know, within the standards or proper ways, or are there some other things that Hugh Freedy might offer for us to Dr. Use? Jared, you are getting a gold star because you're doing exactly what we want to see all of dentists doing. So, um, the cassettes are a bonus. I think we're seeing more of a wave of practices using cassettes just for the simple fact that they are so efficient. You in a pediatric practice, your volumes, and you mentioned this, you see higher than the average number of patients of a general practitioner, right? So it would be pediatric dentists and orthodontists have very, very high practice patient volumes. And so efficiency is paramount to everything that you're going to be doing. So when you're looking at compliance, you have to figure out how do I do this in a way that's compliant? And also how do I do this in a way that's efficient and encourages that compliance instead of breaking it down? So um, the cassette for transportation, as well as um, a, some sort of a tub or device, as you mentioned, you're using a materials tub, but some sort of closed container to house any uh, or contain any potential um, fluid or leakage from the instruments um, or on those, you know, in within the cassettes is really what you want to be doing. So that's basically what all the guidelines would say. If you're not using a cassette, you might be using an instrument basket, um, which a lot of people will call a cassette. The challenge is you want to be looking for a device that's going to keep the sharp instruments from poking out of the holes of the cassettes, which is what you have with the Hugh Freedy instrumentation cassettes and the silicone rails does not allow the instrument sharp ends to poke out. 
which is can be a safety hazard. So you just want to make sure that when you're evaluating your transportation device, I will say what I do see a lot of still is clinicians finishing their procedure. They um, they take the tray cover and they wrap the instruments in there and they are simply holding them in their hand and they just you know walk them down the hall. And again, for you in a pediatric environment, you may have brothers sisters of your patient, parent of the patient, baby stroller coming through. So it can be, you know, busy. And this is exactly what OSHA is saying is be prepared in the worst case scenario for if you're, if you walk out of the operatory and someone's coming down the hall, you're not startled, they're not startled, and there is not uh, any type of incident. The other nice thing I think about the cassettes is it keeps you organized when you're going to do a setup for, you know, a procedure, everything is there. You're not looking for an instrument that was loose that didn't get back with you know the setup that you wanted so that's another nice thing the hand pieces are also big I think when that recently came down more you know that recently came became more of a hot topic I think with the CDC in the last few years and definitely the Iowa Dental Board last year had an announcement about it but technically we're supposed to have a hand new hand piece for every single trophy every single slow speed that we use for an operative or high speed. Isn't that correct? You are. And so the handpiece information came down from the FDA back in the, I mean, pre 2000s, I can tell you that I found some information on the FDA website talking about dental handpieces and and I'll misquote if I try to look at the date, but it's pre 2000s. I believe it was in the nineties or late eighties. So they knew this back then that the hand pieces were a source of contamination. There has been much of an effort from both the FDA and the CDC to get this information out there to help people clarify that yes, this does mean you, and yes, this does mean your hand pieces, slow speed, high speed motors, because they can trap biofilms and bacteria and it's a source of cross-contamination. And there are plenty of studies to prove that and show that to be the case. So now what we're needing to do as an industry is educate the clinical practitioners, make sure the practices are aware that you do need to budget to have more hand pieces than maybe historically you planned for so that you don't compromise infection control protocols and sterilization just because you have high patient volume. So I can tell you in in any type of um, litigation type of situation, I can't under, I can't even think that anyone would say, you know what, Dr. Jared, you're so busy. No, I'm sorry that you don't have the money to afford the hand pieces. We'll wait until you mm-hmm. do, but you just keep seeing patients and cross-contaminating at your leisure until you find the money to allocate toward hand pieces, right? So it's, it's, it's part of doing business is really what it should be and allocating to the patient volumes. It's, a, it's the same thing with instruments. So hand pieces are part of your kit setups. Um, we at Hufridi being an instrument company, we see this all the time. A lot of practitioners do not have enough instrument setups to get through their day, hand pieces to get through their day, or and or adequate sterilizer equipment to process all of the, the, the things that they do have because it's all reusable equipment. We don't single use mostly with these types of things. Um, so it's important that you know all things are thought through and um, we are experts at that with Hugh Freedy. We lead that conversation and we've brought a lot of that into Greenlight to help people have resources to figure out what this means for you and how you get your practice running efficiently. I was going to ask you, you mentioned that you use the cassettes for efficiency. So I can give you another gold star because I think I know what you're going to say. 
are you guys color coding your instrument kits so that it's visual for your staff? It's something so seemingly so small, but it really is a big deal. Is that something that you all are doing? Oh, definitely. So, you know, the staff will know if we have, it's really nice. So one of the examples would be, we have a kid come in that's in pain for a limited exam. And once I do the exam, we can send them off to the x-ray unit and I can tell my staff I want a pink, which means we're taking the tooth out, or I want a blue, which means we're doing a filling or a crown, or I want a yellow and blue, which would mean a pulpotomy and a crown. And I really have a good idea. So when the kid's off going to get their x-ray and I want to do treatment the same day, that can all be set up when I'm going into the room. The other thing that's nice is we also use tubs, procedure tubs. So the tubs are also the same color. So my pulpotomy tub is the same as my yellow uh, rubber dam and my composites and amalgam. The blue kit is the same as my blue tray. So it's, it's really effective way to just have the staff just have it easy and be able to go, go in. I like also how you mentioned that the, the fact that we have to have all these hand pieces. One of the suggestions I would give to, you know, any dentist out there that is looking to maybe become a little more compliant if it's something that you haven't been aware of, there are more cost effective uh, hygiene hand pieces than a slow speed. If you look at getting the same slow speed that you use for your operative, you're going to look at a lot higher RPM and just there's more cost effective ways that you can add these hygiene hand pieces without having to go up above and beyond and get, you know, a thousand dollar hand piece. There's a lot more cost effective ways to do it. The other thing that I liked that was, was mentioned was the fact about having enough autoclaves. We just recently added a second autoclave this summer at my office because we weren't able to, to keep up. And yeah, that's an additional cost to me. And then I also have to pay for the weekly monitoring on it. But it's just really, you know, what you need to do to keep the instruments moving and make sure that you have enough. As a general rule, you should have, for each operatory, you should have, you know, one that's in the autoclave, one that's chair side, and then one in case you drop something. Uh, mm -hmm. So three cassettes for each operatory. So I have two, we have six. We don't ever have a problem because we have, you know, a backup in case I drop something and the autoclaves with two of them were able to keep up. Well, it also gives you room for an emergency patient, right? Or, or, or that one time where maybe you have to come in and see a patient and you don't have your staff there because you're just, you know, treating an emergency and then you can take a look and it helps you with being able to move the patient through you know, as well with the color coding, and then you'll know what's sterile and not sterile because you have everything organized. So again, another gold star for Dr. Jared, because it sounds like you, you know, you've been really owning this conversation and in your own practice and living it in daily life. And so there are decisions that you had to make along the way. And now it's just, it's just what you do. One other thing that we haven't touched on is yeah. that is really big now. Um, and I lecture a little bit on vital pulp therapy and pulpotomies around around the country. And this is actually in my lectures. It was actually recently added to the AAPD guidelines on vital pulp therapy. I'm not sure if you're aware, but in January of 2014, a dental office in Anaheim, California, had about 20 people, 20 uh, kids infected from their water line that underwent pulpotomies with a material called ferric sulfate. And what actually happened was their water line was contaminated 
And the iron and ferric sulfate essentially makes these bacteria multiply a lot faster. And if you're doing a phlebotomy, that's direct in contact with the bloodstream. So these kids ended up getting uh, infected because the water lines weren't maintained properly. What are some of the protocols that we should be looking at to effectively uh, manage our water lines at our dental office? So I'll, I'll give a, a, a couple of resources as well here too. And really what you're looking for at beginning with the end in mind is making sure that the water that's used intraorally is acceptable water quality to treat patients. What that number is in a dental practice is 500 colony forming units or less. So, okay, how do you know that you have 500 colony forming units or less of bacteria? There's only one way to know and it's to test your water. Bacteria isn't necessarily something that you can see the colonies with the naked eye. Um, and so there's ways you can, you can send your water out to labs. There are several labs around the countries. A lot of universities do dental water testing. Also your dental distributors, Banco Dental, Patterson Dental, Henry Schein Dental, um, and some of the others, they offer in-office water testing um, kits that you can grow your own bacteria right in your office and see if you are above or below that 500 CFU. So to me, no matter what, pro what product you're using, I think there's a lot of confusion where people say, well, I'm using a tablet in my water, or I clean my water lines with bleach, or I have this um, this filtration straw that I've installed that says my water is great for a year. And all of those products are wonderful solutions if they're being used properly. And so the CDC and the FDA want to make sure that efficacy is there with products. And the only way to ensure efficacy is to test the outcomes when using the product. And so, you know, so that's one way to do, to do those things. We do have within the green light portal that we recently added. So we have a um, a section in here. So there's a couple ways to remind practices that the importance of water. So we have testing um, availability in here to track testing. So right now, especially if there's multiple locations or multiple doctors, um, in the day-to-day -day scheme of things, it can get really busy. So if you, at the end of every quarter, Dr. Jared, want to take a look and see how your practice is doing with your waterline testing and your biological monitoring testing, you could log into Greenlight and you can take a quick glance and see how things are going. So the fact that we have the testing results that they can be loaded in here automatically, so it's digital, you can print any reports, if you have a surveyor come in, everything's logged real time, that's a, a definite help. We also have in here um, a service for our members that if you need to help understand your water test and you don't know how to read that water test, you can upload your test results and we'll have one of our green light consultants reach out and talk with you and your practice to understand what those results mean, what you're, we're seeing in your water and what are some steps that you can do to um, reduce that biofilm, those biofilm counts within your water. So we've got water testing resources on here. If you're looking for labs or some of the in-office, again, your dealers can help you with that as well. There's a physical log if you wanted to, um, you know, have something in your, in your actual facility to log when you're doing that. We also, um, we've paired up with some experts, um, Dr. John Molinari, who's the godfather of infection control, and Jim Chandler, who is our resident water expert. Um, they've put on a webinar, and we have it in here for users that you can just go on demand and listen and learn from the experts about why water quality is so important. And I think that's something that people need to understand of why you even need to maintain proper water quality. 
So there's a lot of educational resources within the Greenlight um, protocol as well. And you mentioned this Anaheim um, dental unit waterline breach case. And what's interesting that when the, when the case first made it into the news, and generally, if we see a patient safety breach make it into the media, um, it can be destructive to a practice's brand that you've worked so hard to build, and it's completely preventable. And generally, when that happens, it's because you're needing to reach out to patients to tell them that they need to go and get tested. So in Anaheim, they had to put out a press release. You had the, the county um, reaching out to all the dental practices, reaching out to patients to advise them of specific things. And it ended up after over a year, Dr. Jared, there were 72 patients seen in this practice that required hospitalization. I mean, that's a very, very high number that is, again, challenging for the brand, the clinicians that worked in there that see this happen every day and this wasn't happening. And it's all preventable with the right education and putting together the right compliance protocols. So these aren't things you see every day, but when they happen, this is just an extreme case. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of patient safety breaches that occur. And we put you know, them in the green light portal, the ones that are published, published in the media. We never attached. Um, a practice name, uh, that's not the intent. The intent is for people to learn from what other people's violations were so that doesn't happen to them and they don't end up um, the subject of one of these patient safety breaches, you know, themselves when they can completely prevent, you know, doing that. So there's more breaches that occur that just don't make it into mainstream media that are, you know, public record and they're out there. And so I think all these doctors in, in the assisting staff and the hygiene staff would prefer to not be attached to something like this, you know, and have that experience for their patients and their practice. No one wants that. It's just getting the right education and carrying out their compliance well. Yeah, it's really scary. I don't think any of us as dentists want to ever treat a child or a group of children and have them end up in the hospital because we didn't do a test and we're not here to try to scare everyone. We're trying to here to provide more information to become more compliant and increase patient safety and staff safety. So definitely, I think California actually now has the dental board regulating that you disinfect the, you know, if you're doing a pulpotomy, you disinfect the pulp with either sodium hypochlorite or chlorhexine or a disinfectant prior to placing any medicament just because of, of that, that incident. So, I mean, for something that could have been prevented from a, a quarterly test, you know, we have installed the, the Hugh Freedy waterline straws here at my office and we do the testing and th sometimes you do need to shock the units. They do, you know, run closer to, you know, being on that 500 and it's pretty easy to run the shock and clean the system and get it back to where, where it should be. So that's one reason to definitely monitor. When I opened my office uh, about four years ago, this was all kind of new to me and I wanted to be compliant. So I went through and utilized the American Dental Association. They had a compliance manual that you could purchase through them, a bundle with some letters, and then also some HIPAA training. So I went ahead and did that. And I recently now have switched to the green light system. It's very robust and I've been very happy with it. Uh, the green light program, when I signed up, it was a series of questions uh, that I had to prepare. I think there were uh, 20 different sections to complete. You enter all the information. You might have to go do a little research on what your 
using for products and things as far as how you dispose of certain waste that, you know, mm -hmm. if you're using analog x-rays, stuff like that, you might have to go and look and make sure you have an amalgam separator and things that are needed to be compliant. But one of the things that I really liked was once I was done with it, I got a packet and a link and I could click download and I had a complete compliant manual for all my new hires and my staff. I was, I've just been really impressed with the program. What are some of the ways that a dental office can benefit from using this green light service? There's, I know there's, we had my staff uh, do their C annual CE with the green light. There's just a, all the test logs. It's just amazing what this program can do for an office. A couple of the, the key features we're finding that a new member will want to do right away is going to be exactly what you did is create written protocols for your practice. So this is one thing. It's it's just like with your HR policies, you know, and your manual, you need to have protocols for everything. It's how you're going to train your staff. It's going to be, you know, how you get your practice up and running. And that's the validation of your training programs and how things are established in your practice. So the protocols, there's, it, we've made it very, very simple. There's a series of questionnaires, as Dr. Jared, you mentioned, that, yeah, we, we want you to go through this. I do recommend that whoever's in charge of infection control, which infection control is a team sport, I will say that. So everybody in the practice needs to be responsible. But generally, you're going to have one person. The CDC has affectionately named that person the infection control coordinator. So every single practice should have an infection control coordinator. And that person can take lead on this. So you'll want to go in and create your customized protocols just as you did after you complete the questionnaire and plug in some specifics that are um, pertinent to your particular practice. You'll walk away with 22 thoroughly written protocols that are uh, pull information from your state, the federal guidelines, and the CDC guidelines as they're relevant to you. Another thing, the CDC does want dental practices to be uh, conducting an annual infection control self-audit, right? So we've got a, a similar checklist where you answer a series of questions. It's date stamped, it's time stamped who completed this so that you know that and you can show evidence that yes, we are doing these annual infection control self-audits in our practice. And when you get to see non-users and Dr. Jared, you and your practice do, but our analytics and reporting tab is wonderful because you can see trends of your behavior over time. So, you know, good data in, good data out. The more you're doing these self-audits over time and you're adding in your BI testing and your water testing, um, you're seeing your protocols being completed, group practices and multiple location practices really stand to benefit quite a bit uh, because that infection control director or coordinator might be responsible for, you know, five, 10, 50 or more uh, practices. And in order to see some of these things prior to green light, you're having to go to every facility and it can take you a year. And by the time you leave, habits die hard, right? Quick. So in order to help manage compliance, Greenlight really changes the way compliance is managed in a dental practice today, which is what our goal is um, to help people do that. As you mentioned, continuing education is something that um, our users are really getting. We do offer uh, OSHA training. That's the only OSHA thing we do is uh, you know annual OSHA. It's a webinar. We offer live and on demand. And then there's several hours of CE that one can get from in here. And then whoever is the infection control coordinator in the practice, we have a special corner just for that role. 
um, of resources so that person can learn to onboard. We have a varying degree of expertise to people who, you know, some people pick the short straw and that's why they're infection control coordinator. They know nothing about it. Or maybe you have someone who's passionate about it and wants to know more, um, you know, and so we have resources dedicated to that role to help them be successful in the practice and helping the practice with compliance. The other thing that I like that you have on the site is uh, patient awareness resources. You don't really see dentists out there posting on social media about how they are compliant, but that's kind of a nice addition that might help separate you uh, from another office in town. They've got some examples and you also suggest that we go ahead and take pictures of our office of these uh, be things being done and, you know, just release that on social media and, show your patients what you're doing to protect them. It's one of those, yeah, yeah, infection control is not one of those salacious things that's, you know, out front, but it is in, it's on people's minds, they notice it. And so it's something that is subliminal. So at, you're right, this patient awareness section we put on there and we've got some, um, some stock images that we've taken for people to see what are some good things to show patients what you're doing. And for you in a pediatric practice, this will give a parent a lot of confidence in, you know, bringing their child into your facility and knowing that they're going to be taken care of. I mean, I live in Atlanta, which is home to the CDC. And so when I'm talking with practices down here, you never know who could be walking into your practice who's very knowledgeable of these types of compliance guidelines and regulations, and they want the confidence that these things are being done. They don't work in a dental practice, but they set the standard of care, so they're, they're well aware, right? And there's certain communities that are just high-profile healthcare communities, Boston, Chicago, New York, where there's, you know, different treatment, you know, cares, and you never know the, pa the patient sitting in your chair, their record may not reflect that they have, you know, some sort of immune compromisation, but their parent might you know, or their sister or brother, and they're just very in tune to different things. So this can send a differentiating message about the care that someone's going to receive in your practice when, when done right. It's a badge of honor, in my opinion. As far as the green light program, um, I don't pay anything for it. Uh, how, what's the cost to it? And cause I know there's a little bit of a tie into Hugh Freedy and purchasing some consumables, uh, What's the cost? And then how would someone, if they already use your product or are going to start using their product, go ahead and get an invitation to sign up? So I'm giving kudos to uh, Rhonda Anderson, I believe, is who you must have run into in Iowa. And she is one of our account managers, very passionate, knowledgeable about infection control. So I can imagine she saw you and got excited and said, Dr. Jared, you need this. So we developed um, Greenlight to target our users of Hufridi products and um, uh, our name, you know, our kind of flagship product is our IMS cassette system. So if your practice is using IMS cassettes, thinking about using IMS cassettes, that's going to get you in the door to qualify for the green light program. Um, and then we're just looking for what we're finding is that as you're using green light, you're uncovering needs for infection control solutions. And what we hope is that you're going to choose Hufridi to be your partner in that. We basically developed Greenlight to be a partnership for practices that are going to partner and do business with us. So we found that there is an average spend that our members are, um, are doing and targeting. We know the numbers of the average infection control consumable product spend for different size uh, practices 
you know, just based on the numbers. And so what we're finding is, yeah, we'd love to have a percentage of that business because in Greenlight, you're going to get so much value out of that and we're going to help support compliance in your practice. So yeah, I guess the main thing is um, there is no, you're not going to write us a check, you know, upfront, but it's a, it's a partnership program for our customers um, who are using IMS cassettes. Yeah. And I, when I signed up, I didn't, I was already spending the money that I needed to spend uh, on an annual basis to maintain compliance. So it, it didn't, it just made sense to go ahead and take it up and go with one of the world leaders in infection control and instruments and instrument processings. What do you say? Well, I'm sure it makes it easy for you too, because you, you know, you have high trust in our brand um, and what we're going to do. And then the information you're getting from Greenlight is, is can really, we're the experts in the products that we create and provide. We're the experts in Greenlight. And everything in Greenlight is not about Hugh Freedy at all. It really is about compliance. Uh, but we know what we do best. And so I think we have confidence in what we can recommend knowing what our products do and stand for. What do you say to the dentist or office manager or staff that might be listening today? Say, well, we just don't have the time to implement these protocols or this process. I say to that doctor, you have got it all wrong because what I notice is what people don't have time for is not to be a part of the green light because the amount of time that it would take for, for you to create 22 written protocols, number one, you've got to know where to find all that information. We have hired the brightest and best of consultants in the industry to be working with us within this platform to help develop it. And really all you've got to do is it'll take about an hour of your time to answer some basic questions and you are hitting a home run in the compliance department. Then once you develop those protocols, now all you're doing is rolling it out and making sure your staff understand it and they're training to it and you can feel really good about it. So I would say you can't afford not to even take a look at it. If you're not confident that you have this level of detail, it's definitely worth taking a look at to save you time. If you're working with an infection control consultant, this is going to work very perfectly with someone you might already be working with to shortcut um, some of the necessary focus on developing these protocols. They can help you implement them. They can help you train them. They can help you complete them. So it really is ad hoc to, you know, your own practice, working with a consultant and, and getting things done quickly. So you're saying there are no excuses here. Didn't you call me? I think you called me. I am the no excuse. <laughs> I support a no excuse environment. And that's just right, Jared. There are no excuses. That leads into, I just have a few quick questions here to finish up. Um, what are some common like tips you might have? So if you walk into a room and you notice that something wasn't cleaned properly, how, what's the best or, you know, a dirty instrument that has cement on it that should not be out on the patient tray, but something didn't get done correctly there's no way to pinpoint the staff that made that error without you know scanning things and tracking things at a different level what's a good way that you might you know be able to address that with your staff what we do at my office is if you opened the cassette that's the person that's responsible because they should be looking at that when they open it but what's a good way to address that in in the office I think that, that that's, a, that's the exact reason why you want to make sure that you have protocols so you have something to go, to go back to because you never want to make an employee feel um, that they're being targeted or you're pointing the finger that you're wrong. 
that it's it's about upholding the standards within the practice because it, we're a team and everybody has to be doing this. So we rely on everybody um, to be executing these things. So if you see something, say something. You know, essentially, even if this wasn't your kit, then we need to get with the purchasing director or the office manager to make sure that we ident we have a system for identifying things. For your, in your example, if we have a broken instrument, uh, an instrument that has composite on it, that's training, right? Composite on instruments, you the composite's doing its job. It's set it's setting on mm -hmm. the instrument. But what, what happens is that's a staff training issue to remove that composite before it has a chance to set. So different things, I think, again, the, the self-audit in feature in the Greenlight protocol will help draw awareness to where practices' weak spots are so that you can start to focus. Because I think there can be a lot of little things. And it's just finding the one person that people can go to to help be the voice of the doctor. And I really also think that the doctor needs to empower the role of the infection control coordinator to have a voice and have time at staff meetings to be proactive about these conversations rather than reactive and create a culture that supports open dialogue and for people to ask questions and never feel like there's a dumb question. That's one of the worst things I hate when people say, well, I have a dumb question. There is no dumb question. If you have the question, I guarantee that somebody else does. And so they have to support an environment and try to minimize some of the quote unquote cattiness that can happen, you know, in a, in a practice. And the doctor is really the leader in creating that culture. So I think, you know, knowing where to get information, having written protocols to back into and really empowering someone to support that it would be the foundation to all of that to me. The last thing that I've wanted to mention to our listeners that I found very useful was in addition to the green light program, it is very nice to have someone come into your office and actually do some physical training for your staff because they will actually go through the setup and tear down and they will point out some things that you might not think about. One of the things when we had them come down is even if at your, your hygiene bay, you still need to have a biohazard uh, red tub there and we didn't have them. So there's just little things that having also another set of eyes come into the office in addition to the green light program that I would encourage our, our listeners to do. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. I think we've covered a lot of topics that, you know, are very useful and hopefully can help, you know, in increase patient safety and staff training in your pediatric dental office. Uh, thank you again, Jessica, for coming on today. Uh, we'll go ahead and post a link to the green light and hopefully we can get a few more users signed up and increase compliance of our, our listeners. Well, thank you for having me on. And, you know, I've never met a, met a microphone, I think, that doesn't like me or I don't like. And so I always get excited when I get to talk about something I'm so passionate about, um, you know, in this topic. So thanks for having me on and thanks for featuring Greenlight and Hugh Freedy. And uh, I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you for listening to the Sprig Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, and share on social media. If you have any questions or if you have a topic you would like to hear covered in a future episode, please email podcast at spriggusa.com.